the chapter in Ephesians we're going to look at this morning, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into what it means for us. But um, why, don't we, why don't we go ahead and stand? Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 are going to be our verses this morning, and it should be on the screen too. So we can all read this together uh, as best you're able um, to, to do so. So once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commanders of the power in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and He loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace you've been saved. For He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of His grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all He's done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by His grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. You can take a seat. Lord, we uh, come before you this morning, all of us, uh, in desperate need of something to anchor our life on, something to be our authority. Lord, all of us try so often to be our own authority, to look for other authorities, to give us something to stand on, something firm and strong. Um, Lord, we thank you that your word is what we stand on. Um, even when, like this morning, there are things in your word that may run counter to our culture or even counter to our own desires, uh, God, we thank you that regardless of how we feel, those things are true, uh, that your word is the authority of our life because it's your word. God, we submit to you this morning. You are our king we are not. You are in charge. We are not. And so, Lord, we come to your word this morning with humility and, frankly, with a healthy trembling, uh, knowing that your word is what we need more than anything else. And so, Lord, uh, speak this morning in powerful ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so, we're continuing in Ephesians, and Sam and Bjorn have done a great job beginning to craft for us what this book is about and what they hope the book is about for our church. Uh, and, and one of the things that, that Sam mentioned in the intro is that the book of Ephesians is giving us a sense of reality. You guys remember he talked about his glasses and how he can see clearly. God gives us the book of Ephesians so we can see what's real, so we can see life according to what it actually is. Does anyone sometimes get confused about life and what it actually is about? Do you think we get different messages 
for what life is actually about and what is actually real. Has anyone ever experienced that tension? Okay, so I have a captive audience. <laughs> of course, this is, this is the world we live in. And so we absolutely need clarity in the midst of that chaos. Last week, the end of chapter one was really reality for the church. Um, what, what does God want from his church? Uh, and even in that, there's a lot of confusion, right? What does God want from his church? We need his word to speak to us about what his church is. We don't need a human telling us what the church is. We need God's word instructing us on what the church is. And in the same way, this, Paul brings it from a corporate instruction. And in this chapter, he's really bringing it to the individual level now. He's saying this, this is reality for each of you in the church. This, this is what you need to understand is the reality of your situation. So sometimes it's comfortable when we hear things talking about a group of people, uh, but when God's word comes directly at us as individuals and then demands a response, uh, that can get a little more sensitive. So I'm glad Sam had me preach on this one this morning um, because this is about each of us. Uh, this, this, we have to all wrestle, all of us, no matter where we're at, we have to wrestle with what Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 teaches us about our condition um, and, and, and what it says about our reality of what we're facing and the way out. Uh, one of the illustrations I thought of as I was preparing this sermon is, has anyone here had LASIK surgery? I'm going to stick with the eye theme that Sam started with. We have one person with LASIK. Anyone else? Is anyone considering LASIK? We have a few considering it. We have a few. My dad was a pioneer in LASIK. He went to Montreal in the 90s. Can you believe that? Montreal is where it started. And uh, he was one of the initial guinea pigs of LASIK. And it actually made a huge difference in his life even to this day. He can see really well. His eyes were deteriorating pretty significantly. And he said, you know, the surgery was fast. Again, this was before the technology has really improved quite a bit. But he said, you know, the one thing about it that, that was challenging is you're awake for the whole thing. And they literally put a laser in your eye. And he said, what's worse is you can smell it. That's disgusting. <laughs> so you can actually smell, back in the 90s, your eye being burned, parts of it, the part that was unhealthy, being burned away. But then after about a day, he recovered. The eye heals apparently very quickly. And uh, he's never had to wear contacts again. Uh, the health of his eyes have been dramatically improved. They were heading in a deteriorating path, and he's had really healthy eyesight uh, ever since uh, that time. And that's 20 years, 25 years. So I was talking to someone else recently because I've been considering LASIK because I'm tired of insurance not covering contacts. And uh, I, I talked to someone who just had it done in Portsmouth, and they have a new center there that's, that's top-notch. 
And they said, um, yeah, the technology has improved a lot in 20 years. And I went, it was really fast, but they literally put a laser in your eye. And you can smell it. <laughs> so I thought, okay, so it actually hasn't changed that much in 20 years. And as I think about Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, I can't help but get that image out of my mind all week because, frankly, the first part of Ephesians 2 not only burns, but for, I think for our own kind of how we're wired as Americans and the things we've learned about human nature and our culture, I actually think the, the, the teaching in Ephesians 2 can sometimes smell a little bit. It makes us uncomfortable. It, it, it challenges us. It makes us uneasy. What do you mean we're sinful? What do you mean we're subject to the evil one? Um, that seems really extreme, and, and that doesn't jive with, with what I've learned in our culture. I thought humans were generally good. Um, but I, I think for us as a church, to fully see reality in Ephesians, we have to see that. We have to see that reality so that, just like LASIK surgery, on the other side of embracing that difficult part of it, um, we can start to see clearly. Because the more we can see that aspect of our problem, the more we start to see the solution, the more we start to see our purpose. And that's really the three main sections of this talk this morning I want to show us reality from Ephesians 2 about our condition and start with the problem that we see in the first three verses. Move to the solution that we see in the next four verses and then end with the purpose that we see in the last three. So problem, solution, purpose really crafts reality. And by the way, this whole idea of problem, solution, and purpose, that's how all reality is structured. Um, I was at the UNH soccer game last night, and uh, the highlight of the night was they were looking at um, metastasized breast cancer and how little research it gets, but how deadly it is. And um, so even there, they're presenting you with the problem at the game. The solution that they came up with is a fundraiser. We're going we're gonna to fundraise. And then the workers, their whole purpose for the whole night, the whole game was walking around raising money, getting us into the cause. And I thought, that is, that's my sermon. And that's true for any reality. There's a problem. Just think, think of any reality. Think of anything that you think of, any movement, any, any mission. There's a problem, there's a solution, and then there's a purpose. But my point in this morning service is we have to start with the biblical reality of the problem, the solution, the purpose, before we get involved in anything else. We never want another reality to take over the ultimate reality, which is what God's Word teaches us. So in light of that, let's look at the problem. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. If you have your Bible, you can just keep it open because we'll spend some time in there. Um, Paul writes again, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. 
All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. The problem that we see that all of us as individuals have to face is our own sin in our life. Um, our Our own blindness to the things of God if left to ourselves. One, one scholar, theologian, puts it this way, which I thought really captured our cultural moment really well. He said, we are motivated by the whims and urges of our imperfect bodies and minds. We are motivated by the whims and urges of our imperfect bodies and minds. Another way to say that is if it feels or seems right to us, it it must be right. Um, In our cultural moment, that is the general tenor. That is the spirit of the age we live in. Um, every, every age has a different spirit of the age. If you, if you go through church history, you see there are these big things happening in the world that were drawing people away from the truth, drawing people away from God, drawing people away from God's Word. And I think one of the primary ones right now is if it feels or seems right to us, it, it must be right. We are hesitant to admit that maybe what we feel, what we sense, may not be right. Maybe there's part of what's in us that is imperfect and needs intervention and needs an authority. Um, I think we're hesitant to say that. We don't want to be seen as sinful by and large. I've used this analogy before, but I just love it because I think it speaks to this so well. Who of you in this room, whether you're a Christian or you're not, would have your inner life on that screen for everyone to see? And I'm talking all day long. So every thought, every impulse, every image, every desire would just be, and by the way, it'd be an HD. It wouldn't just be like old cable that I grew up on. It would be like high definition. Would have it right there for all of us to look at. Do we have any volunteers who would be willing to do that? Let me just speak for myself. I would not. And why? Because as the Apostle Paul writes, as he As the Apostle Paul, who wrote this, you see it in Romans, as he went on the journey of looking into his life as a believer, okay? Paul was a believer when he wrote this. As he went on the journey of the Holy Spirit showing him what was inside of him, there was a war, is what he described. There's a war going on. There's good things happening, but there's also really bad things happening. And they're, they're at war with each other. They're battling. And the whole point of the resurrection, when we die and are raised to new life with new bodies, is guess what? There's not going to be a war anymore. In fact, everyone in heaven is going to be fine. 
by the way, Jesus was the only one who would have said, I'll show my inner life on the screen. I don't have sin. And that's going to be our reality in the new heavens and new earth, which is going to be an amazing thing, but we're not there yet. And all of us have to wrestle with the fact, whether we're a Christian or not, that there's something going on inside of us that needs healing, that needs cleansing, that needs restoring. And one of the reasons I think, as I've thought about this, that we're hesitant to really look at the problem, I think there's, I think there's two things going on of why as Americans are we, are we afraid of really doing a deep dive into our life, of really seeing like Paul did in Romans 7. I mean, he went all the way down. He looked at his very soul and said, man, there's a lot going on there. There's something in my members that's waging war against <laughs> that section is, is really deep. Paul went really deep into who he was. I think sometimes we just scratch the surface. Eh, I'm a pretty nice guy. I'm a little bit anxious. I'm okay. We don't want to go really deep. Um, I think the reason is on the one hand, some of us might be ashamed of what's going to be discovered and afraid. I'm in that camp, by the way. That's me. The more I see the urges, the impulses, the things going on inside of me, uh, the more afraid I'm going to become, the more ashamed. Uh, maybe God and people will reject me. And then I think for some, there's a sense of pride. Um, I don't, I don't want to see myself as a sinner. I'm not, I'm not going to stoop to that level. How dare you call me that? How dare you assume that I have imperfection in me? Um, how dare you say that there's things about me that need to change? You don't even know who I am. You're not my authority. I'm my authority. But what both sides are missing is a fascinating reality that Ephesians really gets at here, and we see it throughout the New Testament. And this reality moves us from our problem into our solution. What the Bible teaches us is that the more we actually embrace this idea, regardless of what our culture around us tells us, that we know ourselves, and we know we're made in God's image. There's a lot of impulses in us and things that are of God. Um, there's a lot about who we are that mirrors God. Um, there's a lot of our personalities that are wonderful. But, but on the other side, the more we realize that, no, there's actually also this incredibly dark part of me that I'm ashamed of. What we miss in the gospel is the more we come to terms with that, and embrace that reality and stop hiding from it or being arrogant that it's not there. The more, the further down we go, the more it actually draws us up into the heart of God. The more we're willing to admit how broken we are, the more God actually reveals who he is in his grace and his mercy. And the more our hearts start to be drawn to him. See, we're afraid if we go down deep inside of us and see sin, there's going to cause a separation from God, and he's going to reject me. But what we see in the New Testament especially is that the more we start to embrace that truth, 
we, our heart starts to see our need for God himself. Our, our heart starts to see we actually need Jesus Christ. We actually need him. One of the verses I love that just illustrates this so well is Luke 15 in the first part of the verse. And you know what that is talking about in Luke 15? I just, I, this is probably my favorite verse in the Bible. It says that sinners kept coming to Jesus. Sinners kept coming to Jesus. And what, what, what effect did that have, if you guys know that part of Luke 15? What effect did that have on the Pharisees? When the sinners kept coming to him. Do you guys know what the Pharisees, were, how they responded? They got mad. They got angry. But there's something about these sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, they kept coming back to him. They kept coming back to him. And the scripture doesn't say the people who were pretending they weren't sinners, the people who were, maybe they were ashamed they were sinners. What, what it says is very simply, the sinners were coming to Jesus over and over again. They were drawn to him. And how does Jesus respond when the sinners come to him? What does he do? Does he shut the door? Does he say, nah, uh, that's a little bit gross, what you've just done. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I want to be around you. No, it, Jesus embraces them. He calls them out, right? Jesus doesn't say, oh, that's so great you're sinning. That's wonderful. That's awesome. No, Jesus always confronts sin, and he says, stop sinning, or something worse is going to happen. Turn from your sin and embrace me as your Lord and Savior. I want to be with you. I want to be near you. Amazing. So what is the solution? If you read 4 through 7, so again, the moves in Ephesians here is Paul's assuming, okay, my readers have embraced this idea that there is sin in them. <clears throat> but let me offer the solution here. Let me offer hope. But the first step is we have to get that Ephesians 1 through 3 is true. And I think there's a lot of cultural pressure to not think Ephesians 1 through 3 is true. And so my point is, if you don't think Ephesians 1 through 3 is true, 4 through 10 is not going to offer you a lot. It just isn't. But my prayer for this church is that Ephesians 1 through 3, like all of God's word, would be seen as true. Even if it's hard. By the way, it's okay if it's hard. If it's hard for you to face that reality, come talk to someone. We're in this together. It's not like someone's like, I got to pass on that. We're all wrestling with that together and coming to terms with that. This is a place of grace. So moving on, Paul says, okay, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he's done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Um, the way I would describe the solution as you see it in 4 through 7 is this concept, this idea 
that's so central to Paul, union with Christ, union with Christ. If you guys read Paul's other uh, uh, works in the New Testament, and especially in Ephesians 1 that they've been, we have been uh, preaching on, there's this, this term in Christ, depending on your translation, but, but in Christ, union with Christ. Sometimes I think we think of Jesus as his solution as maybe a good example for us or someone we want to emulate, um, someone we want to aspire to be like. If you look at Buddhism, a lot of what that's teaching is to emulate Buddha, okay? To live like Buddha, try to be like him to reach nirvana. And I'm not belittling that, that's just, that's, that's what is taught. Same thing in Islam, be like Muhammad. Follow his example. Live out what he taught. That's a part of Christianity, but that's not the whole story. It's not even close. Um, in fact, what Paul says here is that to even, to even think about living as a Christian or following Jesus, which we'll get into at the very end of our, in our purpose section, because um, Paul does have instructions for living, and as we talked about with the church, uh, there certainly are uh, instructions and, and this idea of following Christ and, and being like Him and emulating His life. That's certainly part of the Christian life. However, before that's even attempted, uh, there has to be a union with Jesus Christ in our very heart, in our very soul. When we receive the Holy Spirit into our life, and Jesus says, if we ask the Father for the Holy Spirit, guess what will happen? The Holy Spirit's coming into your life. If you ask the Father, if you, know how, if you parents know how to give good gifts to your children, the Father's going to send the Holy Spirit into your heart if you ask Him. That's a promise. So those of us doubting our salvation this morning, what I would say is, have you asked the Father for the Holy Spirit? And if you have, He's in you. That's a promise of God's word. When the Holy Spirit comes into us, he unites us to the Trinity. He unites us to Christ himself, to the Godhead. Being a Christian means that God himself lives in you, which kind of blows our mind. It's pretty deep. Have you ever told someone that at work? I'm a Christian. Okay, that's acceptable culturally, kind of, maybe a little bit. God, who created the universe, lives in me. How would your coworker respond to that? Would HR maybe get involved? Medical leave? So in other words, this concept of what it means to be a Christian is not of the world. The world doesn't understand this. You guys understand this who are in Christ because the Holy Spirit reveals this to us as I'm, as I'm sharing this. If I had said that before I was a Christian, I don't know what I would have thought about such a concept as the, the creator of the universe actually entering my life and starting to change me and seal me. Because when the Holy Spirit comes into our heart and unites himself to us, everything changes and starts to change. And what I mean by that is it's still a process. The solution in our life, 
As I said earlier, and Paul is so clear in, in Romans 7, there's still a battle with the Holy Spirit and the desires that Christ has put in our life and our old sinful nature, our flesh. They're, they're battling together until the day we die. However, the solution is, for those in Christ, for those united to Christ, everything that Christ did, dying for our sin and living out the perfect righteous life, those are actually given to us as a gift. So that when God interacts with us, when we're we're in the presence of God in prayer with his people at church, when we're in God's presence, what God sees is his son in us. That's why Hebrews says, approach the throne with confidence. Why? Because Christ is in us, the perfect one. God himself is in us, drawing us into God's presence. So even though, and this is the good news, even though we have a tension where I've, and you're like, wait, Brandon, I thought you just said we're supposed to see ourselves as sinners. Um, what's this whole thing of the Holy Spirit living in us in his perfect righteousness? What I'm saying is have the humility to recognize as you walk each day as a Christian that what Ephesians teaches us is left to ourselves. We are in a really bad situation. We are lost. We are sinful. But everything changes. Don't you see the word but in verse 4? But God. There's a transition. There's a change. Paul doesn't leave us in this state of saying, you're just a disgusting sinner. You're just a disgusting sinner who, how could God even be close to you? That's what Paul could have said. No, what he says is, something changed when Jesus came, died for your sin, lived the perfect life, fulfilled the law, was risen from the dead, the Holy Spirit came into the world, something changed. And what changes is that righteousness, that perfection of God himself comes into us, not because of anything we've done, as Ephesians teaches us, but because of who he is, because of his gift to us. And so now as we walk the life of a Christian, we have this incredible confidence, not in ourselves, but knowing that we have access to the Father every moment of every day. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. Every moment of every day, we can ask God to be in his presence, to worship him, to know him, to commune with him, to cast our burdens on him, because God sees us in Christ. We're safe. And that should give us incredible boldness to admit the the ways that we're still broken, the ways that we still need each other, the ways we still fall short every day, because that's actually not our identity. In the New Testament, how are Christians identified as the core of who they are? Do we know who we are? How does the New Testament always classify Christians? Saints, beloved, righteous, sanctified, children. Does it say you're just disgusting sinners as Christians in the New Testament? No, it it certainly tells us there's still sin in us. That's the whole, every letter Paul writes to church, he's like, knock it off. You guys are ridiculous. Your sin is raging war against each other. Stop sinning. Embrace your identity as a child of God, which leads to our purpose. 8 through 10, God saves you by his grace when you believe. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. 
Sam ended his talk last week um, talking about the idea that the church is missional in its very nature. Missional to this community, to our neighbors, to our colleagues. We're not a church that's stagnant. We're a church that's, that's on the move. And as one theologian puts, and I love this, we work as a result of our salvation not to provide our salvation. Let me say that again. We work as a result of our salvation, not to provide our salvation. Which makes sense to me, because how does Jesus define the Father when he's talking to the Pharisees about the Sabbath? They're coming at him for working on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, basically, you don't understand the Father. Father's always working. The Father's always working. He's always out to redeem and restore, to confront sin and to overcome it. He's always working to bring His kingdom into the world. Would it make sense that the Holy Spirit operates in a similar way as they are one? To me, it would. So if the Father is always working, I'm going to assume the Holy Spirit is working, always building His church bringing his kingdom into the world, working in our own lives. Do we get a day off as a Christian? Do we get a day off to just turn the TV on? I mean, we want a day off. Does anyone else want one? I do. I just want to watch TV all day. Sure. Turn my mind off. I don't want to battle between the sin and righteousness in my life. It's sometimes exhausting. Uh, But we don't get days off as Christians. Um, when we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into our life. I, I hope we understand, and I have to remind myself of this all the time. We don't call the shots anymore. Our life is no longer our own. Sometimes the gospel in America is, is preached as, accept this and your life is going to get a lot better. Has anyone ever heard that? Accept this, your life's going to get better. And I'm thinking, okay, accept this and your life is not your own. Accept this, and you have given up all rights to your life to a king who's far greater than you. And you no longer call the shots in your life or or define what's true. The king defines what's true, and the king defines where and what you do with your life. You've been bought with a price. The Apostle Paul is so clear about that in all of the books of the Bible that he wrote. You are no longer your own. My life accounts for nothing but that I do what God has called me to do, right? And in the same way, when the Holy Spirit comes into our life, we can assume, because He's always working, that He's going to empower us and call us into good works. In fact, if we look at verse 10, we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things He's planned for us long ago. In other words, God has good works for us to do. But He knew that left to ourselves, as one through three taught, we wouldn't do the good works. I wouldn't. But when the Holy Spirit comes into our life, He then empowers us. We join Him in living out those good works that He's, he's calling us to do, that He's leading us to do. He uses, uh, in the announcements, we heard about this idea that uh, you use the different giftings, the different temperaments, the different interests for the sake of the glory of God. All things are for the glory of God. And so he's actually empowering us, strengthening us to live out these good things 
that he's planned for us long ago. So the Christian life is not a life of, I'll come on Sunday, and then I turn things off until next Sunday. The Christian life is something we surrender to God all the time. What does Paul say in Romans that defines a Christian life? We are living sacrifices. And as another theologian put, which I love, the problem with living sacrifices is they get off the altar, which is true. So our task each day is to continue to surrender ourselves, our thoughts, our desires to God. One thing to consider as I close um, this week, uh, wake up in the morning and try this. Admit the problem to yourself and to God. The problem is, God, if you leave me to myself, I'm not going to live for you. I'm going to probably lead myself into a bad place. I'm going to head towards sinful things. That's what my sinful nature does. It it leads there. So I have a problem, and I'm going to have a problem until the day I die. But after you admit the problem, rest in the solution. I'm not left to myself. Jesus has united me to himself. I have been united with Christ by faith. And then own the purpose The Holy Spirit lives in me. He's always working. And so I can assume that today he has maybe one, maybe it's one, I don't know, maybe one specific good work you can do. That's my prayer. God, what is one thing today I can do that is good, that represents the fruit of the Holy Spirit? How can I bring love, peace, joy, goodness, patience, kindness into the world around me, whether it's at work, in the car, with my kids. What is one good thing I can do to build someone up, to bring the fruit of righteousness into the world? What's one good thing I can do? Admit the problem, rest in the solution, own the purpose. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning. I pray, Lord, that Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, would really speak to us today. God, some of what you share in Ephesians 2 is tough. It's really hard to face. Um, But Lord, we know it's true because your word uh, is true. It doesn't lie. It doesn't deceive. Um, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Bible. Uh, Lord, we, may we continue to build our lives on your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.